If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Big Ben Strong is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Man, what an unbelievable day it has been uh, for the government. And just the language coming out of Jugmeet Singh. Uh, I'm just, I wrote down some of these quotes as I was listening to Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP's um, uh, news conference earlier today. And this was, uh, this is on the news that, uh, you know, we were all upset earlier on, uh, uh last week when Bernardo was, uh, moved from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison. Uh, Mendicino, the safety minister, Marco Mendicino, was saying things like, um, you know, he's incredibly concerned, profoundly concerned, uh, uh, shocked that this is going on. And now we find out today that correction services informed his office three months before this happened and then another couple of days before it all went down so what the heck is going on that the they first they say they don't get the information and then we find out from the organization whatever it is whether it ceases or whether it's the corrections people whoever yeah you got the information and then twice including uh, the day or so before he was actually transferred. And then, of course, Mendocino said, oh, no, no, I just found out. It. Well, who's driving the bus? Who's driving the bus? You know, we got Bill Blair. It never gets to him. We get uh, Marco Mendocino. I didn't see the information. We get the prime minister. Oh, he's finding out about it in the newspaper like everybody else is. Who is driving the bus? And this is causing Jugmeet Singh to say such things as it's a culture of ignorance. Massive failures, and it's the Prime Minister's fault. He doesn't have the House in order. The House is not, or his party is not doing its job. The Prime Minister needs to be accountable. This is an ongoing trend that ministers are not aware. We need to make sure that the Prime Minister is held accountable instead of just going to another minister. It's a culture of not informed that doesn't read emails. There's a breakdown, a serious problem. These are quotes, no communication, which is probably why there's a new abacus poll that says that 80% of Canadians want a change. This government is just not aware the right hand, what the left hand is doing. And this is after Justin Trudeau has increased the size of the civil service by 30%. There's so many of them, they don't know what the other one's doing. It's certainly not becoming more efficient. It's not doing things any better. And the ministers just keep blaming their staff. So what is it, just a pile of, of uh, office people in Ottawa that are actually running the country here? It's unbelievable. And here's what Marco Mendicino had to say. I stressed to the commissioner what those concerns are and how the families of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French uh, would find this shocking and incomprehensible. And she absorbed that and she said that she would review the decision. And I think going forward, it will be up to the Correctional Services of Canada to explain to Canadians exactly how these decisions are taken. You didn't read the memo. 
They sent the information three months ago. Now you want more clarity to that information? Well, first you got to open the damn email and read it. You can imagine what Pierre Polyebra had to say. Now we know that he was informed three months earlier and did absolutely nothing. At least two emails that he got from correction services informing him of this move. Uh, and then after the fact, he claimed that he knew absolutely nothing about it. These are too many lies. It's one lie too many. It is time for Marco Mendicino to resign. If Chinese interference, uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party interference allegedly in our elections doesn't raise red flags, if Paul Bernardo doesn't raise a red flag, who the hell is driving the bus? And listen to the Prime Minister's selections of wor- uh, selection of words here when he says many Canadians are upset about this. No, I think any and all Canadians who are informed about this are just livid. Not many, which makes it think, really, Prime Minister, do you care about this? Listen. Obviously, the situation uh, with uh, Paul Bernardo's transfer is an extraordinarily difficult one for uh, many people. I think of the, the families of, uh, of uh, Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey and uh, just how uh, difficult and devastating these moments must be. Uh, so many Canadians are, uh, are receiving this, this news with shock and, and uh, real, uh, real anguish. Uh, I think this is a really difficult thing to understand. This is why the minister has been uh, reaching out directly to Corrections Canada uh, to ask some very, very clear and pertinent questions on uh, how this happened, uh, what we can share with Canadians, and uh, what we can do to make sure that the system is working properly uh, as uh, as we move forward and learns lessons from this. In regards to the Minister's office uh, and the new information coming out, I know the Minister will be uh, addressing that uh, shortly. What the hell did he just say? <laughs> Perhaps why, in an abacus poll, 80% of Canadians now want change. We'll talk about this over the course of the show. Boy, the news just can't get any worse for the Liberals. Of course, finding out today with the Paul Bernardo uh, uh, prison transfer from a, uh, a, a full security prison to a medium security prison um, that uh, Mendicino's, Minister Mendicino's office found out about that three months ahead of time and then again was notified uh, a day or two beforehand and everybody pleading ignorance to it all. An online survey from Abacus Data found the federal government, uh, the federal conservatives have climbed to a seven percentage point lead over the prime minister and his liberals up three points from a month ago to talk more about all of this david coletto is with us ceo and founding partner of abacus data and here now david thank you for the time i hope you're doing well I'm well, Scott. Thanks for having me. So, David, what I found fascinating about this uh, latest uh, information that you have, uh, not so much that one's going up, one's going down from an individual leader's uh, perspective, but that 80% of those surveyed wanted change of some sort. What does that say? Well, I think it's a, an indicator of, of two things. One is a government that is, um, you know, in its seven and a half years in office, um, people you know, naturally get sick of or tired of seeing the same folks uh, in the news and running the country. I also think it's partly because um, on many of the big issues that people care a lot about, they tell us in our surveys that they're not particularly happy with with what the Liberals have done or, or the focus that they've had. So I think both of those account for that really large number of people who say uh, they'd like to see change. But one of the things that we did in, in this survey in particular is just because you want a change in government doesn't mean 
you're ready to accept an alternative. And mm-hmm. and of that 80% who said they want change, 31% of them, so almost, you know, more than a third said they they think it's time for a change, but they're not completely comfortable um, with any of the alternatives. And mm-hmm. I think that's uh, an indicator, for example, to, to Mr. Polyev and the Conservatives, to Mr. Singh and the, and the New Democrats, that, you know, while there's frustration and, and, and readiness to move on past the Liberals, um, a large number of Canadians aren't ready to embrace either of them either. And that, I think, is, is really where our politics is today. Want change, but not entirely sure I want what's on offer by the other parties. Aren't most elections, though, really a test of uh, who wants the best of a bad menu? I don't remember elections where, you know, people, oh, I want this guy. I want this girl. I want, you know, ba 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 It's usually about we've had enough of that person. We now need to, to look at an alternative, which is why we constantly go right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, you know, in, in, in the history of our elections. Uh, um, you, you know, at, at, what are your thoughts? I think so. I think you're right. I think, you know, the, 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 the term that's always used is governments, you know, aren't elected, they're defeated. Um, yeah. And I think there's some truth to that. But I do think there are moments, you know, I, I look back to the 2015 election, the first one um, that, that Justin Trudeau, when he won, there was clearly a desire for change. But in, in, in that case, I think there were a lot of people who were actually attracted to the liberals were attracted yeah. to the positive energy that, you know, at the time, Justin sure. Trudeau was promising to do politics differently. And so, yeah, you still need a desire for change to get rid of what you have. But I think what we're seeing here is that there's a lot of Canadians who aren't in, in enthusiastic about the choice, the other choices available to them. And I think it's important because I've seen many an election. We've had a number in Ontario, for example, where yeah. you know, think of Dalton McGuinty. Um, mm-hmm. you know, he should have not probably won his first re-election because yeah. people were so yeah. unhappy and, and disappointed. And yet, you know, at the time was John Tory was, if you can remember back then, leader of the PCs. Yeah. He kind of, you know, mis- messed it up by making a promise that turned a lot of people off. And so there are. So, so it's just a lesson, I think, and a reminder that just because you want a government out and you're ready mm. for change doesn't mean it will happen if people don't see um, another choice that they just feel comfortable with and that they Did don't you- think is going to make things worse. Do you think with Pierre Polyevra, it's either nobody knows much about him or what they do know about him, they're not necessarily thrilled with? I remember interviewing him a, a while ago, and I, you know, I, I, I posed the question to him. Do you, do you, and I'll ask you, do you think it's his to lose? I do think it's his to lose. I think, um, you know, the, the environment is, is really bad for the liberals. 80% want change. The prime minister's never been as unpopular. Um, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of indicators that would say, uh, a forced mandate is is going to be a real hard thing, but but there's other data in this survey um, that shows rising negatives for for Mr. Polyev, right? And as much as the Conservatives are leading by seven nationally, which is a big lead, um, you know they haven't had a, a lead that big very often in the polls that we've done over the last number of years. But it's not because the Conservative vote share is going up at 35. That's more or less where they've been the last two elections. The reason right. they have a seven point lead is because the liberal vote share is going down and it's not going to the conservatives. So yeah. I think there's there is some reflection that you know if I if I was Mr. Polyev's pollster I would say you need to we need to think about are you doing what you need to do to make yourself appealing to enough people. Um and so yes they'd probably win the election today but it's not because they've grown the tent or expanded their their appeal it's because 
the Liberals are just in such a weak position. What about Jugmeet Singh and the NDP? Opportunity for them? Absolutely. I mean, they're at 21% in our poll, which is, is close to the high watermark we've had them over the last number of years. He's still the most popular leader. He's the only uh, leader in which more people have a positive impression of him than a negative one, right? And so that's rare in politics in any level these days. Um, and so there's there's still goodwill towards Mr. Singh. I think the challenge for the NDP has always been relevance. Um, it's, it's you know, why should I vote for you? Um, because you're not really able to form government. And if I don't want, you know, the Conservatives or I'm not happy with the Liberals, it, the, the choice isn't always clear. I think there's a clear opportunity, right? And um, obviously they've been helping to keep this Liberal government in power, which comes with its own risk. But I don't see evidence that people are turning away from the New Democrats because of it. In fact, there have been moments even in the last month where where Mr. Singh has kind of felt like the adult in the room when it comes to, for example, election interference by saying, look, yeah, I'll I'll get sworn in and look at the the, the, the top secret information, something that Mr. Polyev said he wouldn't do. Or I'm going to fight for things I believe in, even if I think the government's, you know, not not competent on a whole bunch of, of, of files. So there's there's an opportunity for the NDP. Um, but but because of the polarized nature of this debate between Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Polyev, they're still going to have a hard time being relevant when those two choices are going to be front and center and Canadians are going to be focused on those as we get closer and closer to an election. At what point does uh, does Jugmeet Singh take advantage of that momentum and fish or cut bait, just get rid of the partnership and, you know, and feel that he can take over and do a better job? Yeah, that's a that's a tough Tough. I don't know what the, the easy answer. I don't know if there's an easy answer there. Mm. Um, I, I think I think they I mean, strategically for the New Democrats, they don't want an outcome in which one or another party wins a majority because then they lose all their leverage. They lose all their authority and power to, to sort of influence decisions. Um, but you also don't want to you know, leave the liberals in a position when they're strong, right? Right now, rising interest rates, we're, we're likely headed into a recession. People's anxiety around a whole bunch of economic issues have probably never been worse um, in the last decade. Um, if you're an opposition party, this is a great time to call an election or want to be in an election. I just don't know if the New Democrats will. I, I suspect, you know, next spring, Scott, when we're we're talking about some more polls, we'll be closer to, to an election timing. I don't think we're going to see one before the end of this this year. David Coletto with a CEO and founding partner of Abacus Data on the latest polling results from Abacus Data. David, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You with you too, Scott. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The parliamentary budget officer says Canada's exclusive contract with German auto giant uh, Volkswagen to build the electric vehicle battery plant in uh, Windsor Way will cost the federal government up to $16.3 billion over the next year. Ten years, sorry, ten years. It seems, uh, you know, as much time as it takes you to say $16.3 billion over the next ten years, it goes up again. Uh, that figure higher than what the federal government said uh, the deal would cost taxpayers, which included the $700 million upfront capital investment, up to $13.2 billion. What happened? Let's get Franco Terrazano in, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, and with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. It seems you blink your eyes, Franco, and this goes up a little bit. Uh, how do we explain <laughs> the increase here? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm almost worried that by the end of our conversation, we're going to be on the hook for billions more. I yeah. mean, look, uh, crazy. It was announced a couple months ago. We were told it was going to cost $13 billion. But today, you know, thankfully for this parliamentary budget officer, the government's own independent budget watchdog shows that, look, shovels haven't even hit the dirt yet. And it, this cost is already $2.4 billion more than what the government let on. Now, the government is trying to sell this thing as a job creation scheme, um, but let's even just look at the numbers, okay? The government says this will create about 3,000 jobs. Well, even using the government's numbers, I'm skeptical, I'll tell you why in a second, but even just using the government's numbers, this is a cost of taxpayers for more, of more than $5 million for every job created. Now, the government hasn't released the numbers. It hasn't released its math on the job. It's just saying, trust us. Um, but if the government is, is low-balling the cost of taxpayers, I think we have every right to be skeptical that it's also high-balling the jobs numbers. Well, you have to wonder, Franco, because when this was all announced, then Stellantis came back and said, um, you know, they're, uh, they want more money because it seems everybody else is getting more. Now this has gone up. Will they be back banging on the door again? Well, they already are. They already are. Remember, the feds and the province, the Ford government, yeah. announced a billion dollars for Stellantis, and then the Volkswagen deal comes through, where the Fed said they would give them about $13 billion. And what does Stellantis do? Well, it threatens to pull the plug unless it was, it's given even more taxpayers' cash. And, you know, I'm so glad you brought this up because we can't look at the Volkswagen corporate welfare in a vacuum. Because what is this doing? It is setting a very dangerous precedent because not only are we looking at this, but all the lobbyists, all the different corporations, are also watching this, and now they're going to want a big bucket of taxpayers' cash for themselves. Well, when is the federal government going to draw the line and say, no, we're not going to continue to just hand out corporate welfare to every big corporation that asks? Because, look, today it's Volkswagen. Maybe tomorrow it's Stellantis. Are we going to say no to Ferrari? Are we going to say no to Honda? What about other corporations that want to set up in other provinces like Winnipeg? or Alberta, or British Columbia, or Nova Scotia. What we're seeing today is a dangerous precedent where it almost seems like the federal government is just willing to throw other people's money at these different types of multinational corporations. Uh, playing devil's advocate here, Franco, we'll tell the other side of this. Well, there's those that say this is creating jobs, this is um, uh, providing a, a living and an industry here in this country. Uh, what should they be doing other than offering these incentives? Well, look, I don't want to take away from the fact that uh, many people right now are looking for a job. I totally understand that. And a lot of people have been put out of work because of the higher taxes and red tape that actually stop businesses from developing using their own money. But even if we take the jobs argument and we don't even scrutinize the federal government's numbers, we just take it at face value and like, why should we? Uh, But it's $5 million for every job created. $5 $5 million for every job created. I mean, we'd save money just giving people a winning lottery ticket, right? This is the type of deal. This is just how bad taxpayers are getting soaked with the Trudeau government at the negotiating table with these huge corporations. Now, another thing that I want to push back on, I know you're playing devil's advocate, but I have to push back, is that these, this money, this $16.3 billion going to Volkswagen isn't falling out of the sky, that money has to be taken out of the economy, right? The government doesn't have a money tree, right? That money is being plucked from both Canadian families' budgets, but then also the budgets of Canadian small and big businesses that are already struggling. 
right? So essentially what we're seeing is we're seeing families who are worried about their mortgage payments going up, who are worried about uh, dinner tonight, and the government is prioritizing this multinational corporation. Because again, folks, $16.3 billion isn't falling from the sky. That'll have to come from Canadian taxpayers' pockets. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. That VW plan, it's gone from uh, 13.2 to 16.3 billion, uh, just in the blink of an eye. Franco, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me on today. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Burlington City Council has declared intimate partner violence and violence against women as an epidemic. The council passed a motion Tuesday night with unanimous support. It commits the city to educating residents about the danger of domestic violence and engaging with community partners to find solutions. To talk more about all of this, Mayor for the City of Burlington, Marianne Mead Ward, and she's with us now. Marianne, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me on. So why the need for this? Why declaring this an epidemic? What does it mean? It's really to raise awareness about the magnitude of the problem. And it was shocking even for me and my colleagues at both city and region. We passed it unanimously uh, yesterday and today, respectively. And, you know, 10 calls a day in Halton, three arrests a day. And over the last 40 40 years or so, 22 women have lost their lives in intimate partner violence, and one is too many. I mean, it is it is staggering, and it's really a, an issue that I think people are not aware of in Halton. Obviously, intimate partner violence happens behind closed doors. It's in the privacy of your own home, and only about a third of, of what happens is actually reported. So we really wanted to uh, stand with and stand by these uh, women and children that are subjected to this and raise awareness about it. So, Marianne, can you give me that number again? It was You said 20 women have passed away? 22, we- 22 women in the last 40 years. Yeah, that was from a deputy. In the last, by- sorry, in the last 40 years. 40 years. So about every other year, every two years, a woman in Halton is killed by her partner. But in between time, uh, 10 calls a day police are responding to intimate partner violence. And we know that in in every case, and this was was straight from uh, Deputy Hill, who delegated at both city and region um, to, to share what the police statistics were, in every case where it has escalated to extreme violence or murder, there have been a series of calls that led up to that. So, you know, we want to we want to obviously stop this from occurring at all and we have to nip it in the bud at the call level. So, awareness is that the biggest role for the city here? What what role can the city play here? Awareness is a huge part of it. Advocacy is another piece of it because a lot of issues are systemic. They're in the court system. There there needs to be education and awareness, uh, certainly of judges. And so uh, Burlington launched a nationwide uh, effort called Kira's Law. Uh, Kira was born in Burlington. Uh, her mm-hmm. parents were divorced. Her father jumped off of Rattlesnake Point with her, murdered them, murdered her, killed himself. Uh, but there had been no no violence, no uh, no bruises prior to that point, and so the judge in that case was not 
had to be persuaded ultimately to have supervised visits, and he was just about. He, it, this was a day before the judge was going to ensure they were supervised visits with him and his daughter, and it was a it was a day too late. It was a lifetime too late because he didn't understand course of control, and so we um, in Burlington got behind Kira's law that is now provincial and federal law for education of judges. So so advocacy is a huge part of what municipalities can do if we can't if we don't have the legal authority to make changes we can certainly raise our voice uh epidemics for homelessness uh opioid addiction now intimate partner violence are you worried that this loses impact the more we label things like this is there a different way to get the message across uh and address the issue well, you know, those issues are, are related, actually. Uh, you know, women stay in abusive relationships because they don't have shelter. They don't know if they're going to end up homeless. Uh, addictions is often uh, a part and parcel of why intimate partner violence happens. And so these issues are all, uh, they all intersect each other. We need to deal with each of them, uh, not only individually, but as a collective whole. And I can tell you that the response, uh, even in the last 24 hours since Burlington, issued our uh, declaration that this is a crisis has just been overwhelming with people saying thank you for doing this, uh, sharing their stories, uh, wanting other municipalities to do this, and and ultimately asking uh, the province, and I believe it should be a national crisis, uh, declared so that the appropriate resources at all levels can be brought to bear. And and this came out of uh, the Renfrew inquest where three women were killed by their partner. And the top recommendation was to declare this a crisis and take it seriously because of that. A similar motion for all of Halton on the on the docket on the table? We passed that this morning at Halton Region unanimously. So oh. yeah, City Council of Burlington yesterday and Halton Region today. So uh, and and we have asked the province in both cases that they should also honor the uh, recommendation from the Renfrew inquest to declare a province-wide crisis. Marianne Mead Ward is with us, Mayor for the City of Burlington. They have declared intimate partner violence and violence against women as a uh, epidemic as of a motion passed on Tuesday night. Marianne, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Have you been uh, watching? <laughs> it was interesting watching uh, the arraignment of Donald Trump yesterday and, you know, the slow speed chase through Miami. Well, I guess it's not a chase. Uh, convoy? No, I guess it's not a convoy. Uh, anyway, uh, and he's in there for about 45 minutes or so, and then he's out pleading not guilty to all 37 charges. What happens next? How does this affect his political career and campaign moving forward? Let's bring in Thane Rosenbaum, Distinguished University Professor, Truro College, Director of the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society, NYU, and Legal Analyst with CBS Radio and Here Now. Thane, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am very well, Scott. You know, it's very exciting here in America. We never, never had anything like this before. It is quite the circus when you stop to ponder it. Uh, what is next? What happens now? I heard that this could take a year before it gets uh, back into court. I would think so. You know, there's going to be a lot of pretrial discovery, right? The, case, the trial, even picking a jury is going to be a complicated matter here. Uh, but there's going to be some procedural issues. You know, there Trump's lawyers, when he finally assembles a team, you know, he had trouble gathering a team together. I don't know if the Canadians know this, but, you know, you, there's a great way to lose a job, even if you're a partner at a, at a Wall Street law firm in, this, in, in America, to represent Donald Trump. 
Hmm. Uh, it's pretty simple. The guy who actually he tapped uh, to be his lead lawyer, he was taken off the website the next day. Done. <laughs> so I don't I don't know what arrangement he made, but they they can't they can't. It's like it's, he's radioactive now. So the, the threat that comes from corporations that said, look, we have we're happy to retain you, but not if you're one of your guys. It's the exact opposite of what America used to be about. You know, quick, uh, you guys, Canadians know history better than Americans do. But, you know, our second president, John Adams, when he was a lawyer before the, the Revolutionary War, he represented the British soldiers in the Boston Massacre. Hmm. And he's a he's a founding father. But he was a lawyer in Boston and he took that case. And look at today, if you're a lawyer and you're representing a client that people don't like, you're done. So there's going to be – that lawyer is going to probably make some – there will be motions for a number of things. Um, certainly the attorney-client privilege is going to be invoked because the, the best evidence against Donald Trump came from his lawyers. And so the question is, well, isn't that privilege communication? And so I'm sure they're going to challenge that. Who knows? Those things could be taken up to appellate court. Um, they might challenge the original search at Mar-a-Lago. They might say, this is the president of the United States. He was acting according to the Presidential Records Act. He had a possessory interest in documents created during his presidency. And what are you doing coming in with the FBI, going into our, his house? What are you kidding? That's hmm. what they're going to say. <laughs> what are you kidding? This is America. He's a former president, for God's sake. So I'm sure, I, I don't know if they'll say it as well as I just said it, but they'll, they'll say something like that. Uh, they might. Um, so these are all procedural challenges. The government, by the way, might challenge the judge and say that they would like her to be to recuse herself, because you may remember after the Mar-a-Lago search, Trump, there was no criminal proceedings. All that happened was a search. There wasn't a place to go to criminal court because there was that just started yesterday. So there wasn't a place to go. Right. All they had done was taken the documents out of his house. So Trump went into a a civil court, uh, federal civil court in, in Florida, in Miami, and got a federal judge to order that the government is not allowed to look at any of the documents until a special master reviews them first to determine whether any are privileged, either as attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. Scott, do you want to know who that judge was? The exact same judge that we're sitting mm. in on this case. So you can imagine the government's going, oh, my God. Now, by the way, that decision was overturned by an appellate court. But she had this very interesting thing to say when the government said no one is above the law. Everyone has to follow the law. She said, quote, she said, this this is the former president. And he's in a league of his own. Very dramatic statement. Right. To say stop saying all the laws apply in the same way. They don't. He has he has different rights. So if you're the government, you don't want her. <laughs> So you can imagine there'll be a fight about that. So there'll be a lot of procedural challenges for sure. Um, and then there'll be a great difficulty in picking a jury. By the way, the jury is, a, is not a bad jury pool for Trump. It's a great jury pool, which always made me surprised that they were bringing the case in Miami. Um, in addition to the fact that Florida is mm. a red state, right, that's one thing. Even better than that, more than half of the population of Miami is born in Latin America. People don't remember this. This is a, it's a, Miami, Dade County is Latin American. You know what that means? A lot of them actually do come from the banana boat countries. 
And they get really suspicious when the government tries to take down a political rival. Hmm. They go nuts. They don't, they don't like it. They've seen it. That's why they want to see That's why they left. So they how does... Cuban, yeah, go ahead. You know, I mean, obviously, Donald Trump is just one perpetual court case. It just keeps going. It seems he's <laughs> always in court. And I mean, it's, yeah. it's the way it is. Um, how yeah. does this affect his presidential campaign? How does this does it? Obviously, he's using it to raise money. But how does it affect his actual com- uh, campaign? Well, you know, I don't know how the Canadians would do this in your country. But here, his base is actually mobilized and galvanized by this. The government has done, the Biden administration and local prosecutors in blue states have done him a big favor. He, this, in his mind, shows his base, look, look at the proof that how dangerous they think I am by representing red state America. That they're trying to take me down in four different kinds of prosecutions to stop my campaign. He's raising money off of this thing. He, if he's if he's in courtrooms, if he's going to bounce from New York to Miami to Washington, D.C. and Atlanta, I'm starting to think those other cases are going to commence also. He's going to be in four courts. He's going to be making speeches outside the courthouse steps in four different cities. That's how he may campaign. It may seem, right, that that is a disadvantage, but to Trump it might be an advantage. He sucks all the oxygen out of the air. There are no other issues other than his the prosecutions against him. He certainly does come across, even if you don't like him, it seems like, wow, four, four criminal cases at the same time. <laughs> when does that ever happen? Right. So, he, you know, he could, in fact, you know, have people think, well, that's a, a gender, a little sympathy mm. for him. Could be. What about uh, what about the rest of the Republicans who, who are trying to gain leadership? We've only got about 30 seconds left. Thane. What, where, how do they position themselves in all this? Only uh, Jack uh, uh, Nikki Haley, the former governor from South Carolina, has taken an anti-Trump position as if this guy's bad for us. And actually, Chris Christie also. Yeah. But the others seem to be sympathetic to him. And in fact, one of them, um, I forgot his name, but there's one the, the, uh, American Indian fellow uh, who was Rajesh uh, Ramaswamy, I think his last name is. He said, if I'm elected, I will pardon him. Period. Hmm. Right? If I'm a, here's something you should all know. So I don't know. I think that you know, oddly enough, it's benefiting him, and his competitors are afraid to hammer away at him because his the, the Republican base seems to be lining up in his favor. Thane Rosenbaum with us, distinguished university professor, Truro College, director of the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society, NYU, legal analyst with CBS Radio. Thane, thanks so much for this the uh, time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Be well, Scott. Any time for you. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. With the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, a long time ago now, there's been always the threat or chatter every so often of nuclear weapons. Now Belarus has Russian nuclear weapons. The president said or declared on Tuesday that he wouldn't hesitate to order their use if Belarus faced an act of aggression. What is an act of an aggress- of aggression in the eyes of Belarus? Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, Ph.D. program uh, coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. And with us now, Jack, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. I hope you're well, too. So uh, if Belarus uh, thought it faced a act of uh, aggression, what is an act of aggression in the eyes of Belarus? Well, Mr. Uh, Lukashenko, since he uh, 
won a fraudulent election in 2020, has been trying to bolster his domestic popularity by arguing that the Western powers are trying to uh, oust him. And uh, and I think he would regard any military move against him as uh, as as threatening. Uh, after all, Belarus borders three NATO countries, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. But uh, we shouldn't take what he says at uh, at face value. This is uh, the, these these weapon these these weapons. At least, if we look at his rhetoric, are really being used to deter a threat that uh, that doesn't exist. NATO has never seriously talked about uh, ousting Lukashenko. Uh, there are uh, there, 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 certainly the Western powers disapprove of him and would be happy to see him go. But there's been uh, no serious discussion of invading Belarus. And these uh, these nuclear weapons uh, are under Russian control. They're not under Belarusian control. Hmm. And when confronted with this, Mr. Lukashenko said that uh, he can get Putin on the phone any time and that, uh, that, in fact, he had demanded that the weapons be placed in Belarus. Now, this is all really a case of the monkey presenting himself as the organ grinder. He's, uh, he's Putin's monkey. He's Putin's sock puppet. And uh, Putin is not going to uh, outsource the ability to initiate nuclear hostilities to Lukashenko. That was my next question. What role does the uh, does he have in Putin's uh, mind? Does Putin use Belarus as a decoy, uh, as a, as a distraction, or at the end of the day, he is still in control? He still holds the trigger. In other words, he can't say, "Hey, they did it, not me." Absolutely, he is he is still very much in control, and uh, well. Well, Putin's rationality on some questions is uh, is debatable. I don't think he's crazy enough to uh, initiate nuclear hostilities on Lukashenko's say-so, or, uh, or in fact to initiate them under almost any conceivable uh, scenario that we're likely to see in Ukraine. Um, what he's trying to do is in part rattle uh, the Western powers, shake their support for Ukraine. And anything that smacks of nuclear escalation uh, is is in his eyes worth trying as a means to that end. And after all, this is the first time since the end of the Cold War that, that uh, Russia has deployed its nukes outside of its own territory. Uh, much has been made of that. Uh, I think I think rather too much has been made of that. But uh, Putin wants to uh, shake Western resolve. He also wants a distraction from the fact that the. Uh, the war in Ukraine, or the special military operation, as he calls it, is not going according to plan. The uh, the Ukrainians, uh, despite the setback uh, initiated by the uh, the destruction of the Kakova Dam about a week ago, have uh, launched their counteroffensive. Uh, it's they're making some progress. They're regaining some territory, although they have not yet engaged the main Russian defensive line. So the hard part is yet to come. But uh, still, it doesn't look good from Putin's point of view, and anything he can seize upon as a distraction, he will, in fact, seize upon. Uh, with listening to Belarus rattle uh, the nuclear sabers, per se, um, does this sh- show the rest, uh, those in the West, just how desperate he is? Because it seems whenever they get backed into a corner, they play this card. It is an expression of desperation. I mean, Putin had uh, had gambled on a very quick victory, winning in a matter of days, if not weeks. Uh, he hasn't got that. His uh, his military is now severely depleted. 
it is technologically outgunned in, in, in important areas with the, uh, the weaponry that uh, the NATO powers are supplying Ukraine. And it's hard to see him uh, seizing, uh, seizing uh, all of Ukraine as he had uh, promised to do initially. So he is, he is in fact, uh, backed into a corner to some degree. Belarus uh, saying it's uh, it will use Russian nuclear weapons if faced with an act of aggression. Uh, a lot of this uh, just saber rattling. Dr. Jack Cunningham with his Ph.D. program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, To say there's a breakdown in communications uh, in the federal government is a massive understatement. Um, You know, we were going to initially talk to Duff Conacher about uh, the CSIS testimony in which the head of CSIS said he he was adamant that CSIS had sent documents up to Bill Blair, who was the safety minister at the time, to notify him of the election interference allegations with Michael Chong. Um, But while we're we're trying to decipher and digest that story, uh, now we find out that uh, the current safety minister, Marco Mendicino, uh, knew that or at least his office knew or at least corrections uh the correction services people had sent information to his office three months in advance that paul bernardo was going to be released from a maximum security prison and moved to a medium security and then was notified again a couple of days ahead of time and the safety ministers i had no idea so what is going on? There is a crisis, communica- communication crisis in the government. Jagmeet Singh calling it a culture of ignorance, massive failures, and it's the prime minister's fault. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. So uh, before we get to CSIS and the documents being sent to Bill Blair, which is along the same sort of lines, people uh, from establishments sending uh, information to the prime minister's office, and it just doesn't get there. We're hearing the same thing now with the Bernardo situation in the, in the prison transfer. What are your thoughts that uh, this information was sell- uh, sent from corrections to the minister and yet doesn't see it for three months? Uh, it can happen too easily. Uh, the problem is uh, overwhelming number of emails coming in because uh, the minister's email is is made uh, public in, often these days, and so their offices can be flooded with emails. Uh, and secondly, just um, staff not ensuring and maintaining priority lists of terms of issues and decisions that need to be made and, and notifications and things that need to be signed off on and considered by the minister, um, which is a failing. That, that is uh, an issue of uh, competence, not just being overwhelmed by uh, by emails. And so that's how these kind of things fall through the cracks when they really should be guaranteed communication systems to ensure uh, that these key communications get through. It seems the politicians aren't running the country. It's the civilians that are working in the offices that are making these decisions. Uh, yes. Well, the um, any minister is the narrow end of a big funnel of flood of information and decisions and crises and issues. And so they can get overwhelmed at times. Um, 
but uh, there you know have to be protocols in place in terms of what is key information with without you know vague definitions but with very clear rules uh, for the former national security advisor to try and claim that information about Michael Chong uh, being under threat of harassment from the government of China and to say that was just a memo for information, not a memo for action. Well, Mm. all information is the basis for action. So to try and parse that out and say, oh, that was just to inform us, not for any follow-up. Of course you follow up. Follow up with anything that's key information and pass it on if it's key information. So that was just a ridiculous claim for him to make. Um, And otherwise, uh, for the, the minister's offices to say, we didn't see it, well, then they just do not have good information management systems in place, and that is a matter of competence. You talked about the offices being overwhelmed. How can that be when the size of the civil service has grown 30% under this prime minister? So there's clearly lots of staff there. Uh, Yeah, we're talking about minister's offices, though, um, which is different. And unfortunately, um, the the prime minister's office is an example in Privy Council office. What they have uh, increased is the number of people involved in communications and essentially managing the message, trying to get the right spin and headlines, instead of ensuring that information flows are working and that decisions are being made on key issues that are urgent and information passed on on those key issues. And that's where the government should be shifting. Take those people out of communications. You know, you don't need a ton of communications officers because the media covers whatever the prime minister says and whatever news release comes out of the office. And instead, they they have increased uh, the number of people doing communications, and that takes away jobs from people who are doing really key things, which is ensuring that key issues and urgent issues are uh, acted on and the prime minister is informed in every case. We always talk about meeting the threshold and it wasn't really that bad or whatever. Um, If Paul Bernardo doesn't raise a red flag and if election interference by the Chinese Communist Party doesn't raise a red flag, what the heck would? Well, uh, headline of the day and responding Hmm. to it or trying to prevent it or trying to get a better headline. Unfortunately, that's what uh, the Trudeau government especially uh, but all governments across country are focusing on trying to win the headline wars, trying to get the good headlines, get their stuff reported on, um, and trying to counter spin and spin on, on social media instead of doing the much more important work of ensuring that if there are problems and they're serious, then the information is communicated to the decision makers and the decision makers make a decision uh, urgently because they're, if it's an urgent matter. So, yeah, it's a it's a focus on hiring people to spin as opposed to hiring people to ensure that problems are addressed uh, quickly. And, and the more urgent they are, the more urgently and quickly they're addressed. Jeff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, talking about the breakdown in communications, which seems to be pretty evident now uh, in the federal government uh, between the prime minister's office and various uh, other institutions. Duff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Take care. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. What happened with former Supreme Court Justice Russell Brown? Uh, the headline in the Globe and Mail, hushing up the fall of a Supreme Court judge by Campbell Clark. Something has happened. A justice of the Supreme Court of Canada fell off the bench. Just what happened wasn't revealed at first. It was then treated as confidential. And now it's over. It's none of your business. We should have some concerns. And to talk more about all of this, Campbell Clark, Chief Political writer for the globe and mail and here now campbell thank you for the time hope you're well i am you so far so good campbell uh, you know we're, we're hearing of massive communication breakdowns it seems between staff and agencies and and the ministers that head these departments and such uh whether it's election interference or or paul bernardo and now a judge is this more of the same is this just another example of that breakdown or is this well, something completely uh, different? I would say no. This is not communications breakdown inside the government. This is another group of people. It's the judiciary and the organizations, the bodies that uh, are responsible for disciplining judges. So it's not quite the same as ministers and staffers and officials in the government. But what we have here was kind of one of those very Canadian, let's not talk about this it's all unpleasant. There was a situation with a chief justice who was accused of uh, improper behavior in Arizona when he was on a trip there and had a drunken altercation with a, uh, an ex-Marine and was accused of sexually harassing uh, two women. Now, he denies that, but you know he went on leave. There was a complaint. He went on leave and nobody was ever told that he, well, for six, five weeks that a Supreme Court justice was not doing his job because there was a complaint against him. And that's very strange. So why the resignation? So the reason that the immediate cause for the resignation was that he was about to be sent to a public inquiry. In other words, a, a public hearing, a public disciplinary process. A panel uh, of the Canadian Judicial Council had decided that, uh, resumed that they'd seen enough evidence or that these charges were serious enough that it had to be brought into a formal process. I say I presume because the panel's reasons for sending this to a disciplinary hearing weren't ever um, revealed to the public. And, you know, what essentially happened was last week, the uh, Canadian Judicial Council, the, the disciplinary body, was going to announce that there would be this public review and uh, the justice, Russell Brown, was informed and decided to resign rather than go through with all that. Um, so obviously uh, he has stepped aside, so then the case is closed. Will we ever know? Should we know? So I think we've seen an unusually private and secretive process for dealing with a justice of the Supreme Court. These are public officers. These aren't people you know, working in private as arbitrators. This is the highest court in the land. Can you imagine if a Supreme Court justice in the United States just went off the job for five weeks and nobody mentioned it to the public that he wasn't involved in cases anymore? That just seems uh, a very strange way of dealing with a disciplinary process for one of the members of the top court. And, you know, if this was a government official uh, a senior public servant, we would expect some kind of public accounting for what happened here. It's 
Do we know much about this judge's past record? Does he have otherwise a stellar career? Is this a pattern? Do we know anything uh, anything about the background? As far as I know, there's no personal pattern here. Uh, this was a one-time thing. It was in January. Uh, he was not, as, as far as I know, known for anything like this, but it became quite public because, um, there, you know, this is the United States. There was a police report filed. The police reports were made public. There was even body cams of the police officers uh, who uh, interviewed the uh, the other person who actually punched Chief, uh, sorry, Justice Russell Brown. And then he did an interview with the Vancouver Sun. So it all came out in public. Now, what we do know about Russell Brown was that he was a pretty well-respected justice with a very strong intellect and the, one of the most powerful sort of conservative voices of the court. And um, you know, he was appointed by Stephen Harper in Mr. Harper's last days, you know. And he is, you know, was considered kind of the audacious conservative on the Supreme Court as much as there is. The fact that he stepped down instead of let instead of letting this run his course, what does that say? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people take that as uh, you know, he just didn't, you know, he he didn't want to go through with it possibly because it was going to be embarrassing along the way. Um, but, you know, I think people are taking it in a couple of different ways. One is, you know, his lawyer said that uh, he, this was a process that was being weaponized against him. And just think for a moment, we have a, a justice of the Supreme Court saying, I couldn't get justice from the system here. Uh, we don't know if he's essentially uh, bowing up because he doesn't want to go through embarrassment uh, or... Simply, you know, it's an excuse to walk away. Or he could be saying, you know, I don't feel like I can get a defense in public in a timely manner. We don't know. But we do know so, he's walked away rather than go through the disciplinary process. So is that it? It's over? Um, it's over. It, yeah. It's a done deal? The Chief Justice said, you know, there's no matter here anymore. But it is strange that, you know, this has been going on since... January 29th when the complaint was filed and we heard so little about it along the way you know it was sort of kept secret for five weeks then it was treated as confidential and then he bows out quietly and we're not told what happened or what decisions were made in the disciplinary process. Uh, what about a, a replacement what happens now moving forward? So the process now is that the Prime Minister chooses a replacement. It's supposed to be a judge from Western Canada by convention because there's uh, a number of places in, um, that by convention are for a uh, Western Canada judge. Russell Brown was, as I understand, he grew up in British Columbia, but he was considered an Alberta judge. And so the Prime Minister will pick somebody new. Uh, it is at the Prime Minister's prerogative. It will probably change the balance of the court because I would assume that Justin Trudeau will not pick uh, conservative. That's not as big a deal in Canada as it seems to be in the United States, but it will have an impact on the decisions that we see coming out of the court. Would, uh, would the Prime Minister's office have known about any of this, or is this just a, a judicial issue? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. The these things are usually treated as a judicial uh, issue. They are quite hush-hush, but it does uh, seem like, you know, the Chief Justice 
uh, should have been probably informed the justice minister. I honestly don't know the answer. The chief justice said actually that he wasn't allowed to make the uh, fact that the judge had uh, was the subject of complaint public because the rule said that it had to be the Canadian Judicial Council that did so, and he felt like he was in a, an uncomfortable position for a period of time. All of these things are handled by relatively former rules that seem to fit the sort of you know, quieter days of the 19th or early 20th century than they do the sort of modern world of uh, you know, public accountability that we should expect. Mm. Hushing up the fall of a Supreme Court judge. It's the latest from Campbell Clark in the Globe and Mail. Uh, Campbell Clark, chief political writer for the Globe and Mail. Uh, Campbell, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Joining us, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Before we get to the playoffs, um, the whole Paul Bernardo issue, moving from a maximum security prison to a medium. Uh, Marco Mendicino, the safety minister way back when, said he was shocked and and, uh, profoundly concerned and all this stuff. Now we find out, as as often happens, we hear from the institution, Correction Canada says, no, we told you back in March, three months ago, and also gave you another heads up just days before the release. It seems like the civilian staff, Ottawaians are running the government and not our actual leaders. Another incredibly drop football here, fumble here. Uh, it's if you amazing. Believe that, it. If you believe well, that, if well, you believe that, and if you well, do believe that, Scott, who do, you, who do you who do you not believe? Do you not believe CSIS? Do you not believe Corrections oh, no, Canada? No, no, no. Do you not believe all these institutions? I believe the institutions. I'm saying you either have to believe his staff really didn't tell him, or his staff are going to serve as the fall guy. Yeah. So you can decide who you believe. But here's the question, Scott. If you are the staff of a cabinet minister, a really highly ranking cabinet minister, and you're so inept that you don't even tell the cabinet minister of important things that are happening, how are they still employed today? Because you know they're not being paid poorly. How are they still, if this was their fault, and we've heard this now from how many different cabinet ministers about different things that, well, my staff never told me. We keep hearing this. How yeah. you people who are listening, who are paying vast amounts of money for taxes to go to enormous salaries for bureaucrats and staffers, if they are this inept, why are we paying all this money? Good point. Jugmeet Singh says he was pretty hot this morning. Uh, he called it, and these are all quotes I was jotting down as fast as I could, a culture of ignorance, a massive failures, and the prime minister is at fault, doesn't have his house in order, not doing its job, needs to be accountable. This is a trend, not the ministers. It's the prime minister. We need to make sure the PM is held accountable. What are your thoughts? Uh, which president was it that had the uh, um, the sign on his desk that says the buck stops here? Um, yeah, uh, I can't. Was it Truman? I think was it was it? Truman who had the the sign. Anyway, um, the buck stops here. You are the leader of your party. Stuff is going to happen. Unquestionably, if you if you are expected to be responsible for every individual minute thing, stuff will occasionally happen. The problem, Scott, is that we're seeing this happen not on a, oh, that was once, and then we sent a message to everyone saying, don't let this happen again. We're seeing this repeatedly happening. We're seeing stuff happen now with 
the, again, the kind of recurrence that I go back to my point. We are paying people who work for these politicians in Ottawa excellent amounts of money, money that most of us will never make. And if you are not capable of doing your job, you, there should be consequences. We, If we're paying this much to have good service and you're giving us crappy service, whether it's the politician or your staff, something there should be some consequences there never seems to be consequences who who scott where are the consequences for anything that happens in government where show me an example who who what what bureaucrat ever gets let go what politician now ever has to step down what prime minister ever has to do anything except saying well you know this is just political and uh hey abortion I mean, which is the answer for everything. <laughs> Anytime something happens, we send out Marcia Ian to just send out a tweet about we're all yeah. for abortion. And that's or saving to, the planet. Yeah, whatever. It's just it's so fake and phony and antagonizing and aggravating now that nobody is held to any standard for anything. You screw up. Eh, you screw up. Keep paying us more taxes. Uh, President Truman said the buck stops. I, yeah, here. I thought it might have been uh, a new poll by um, Abacus. Eighty percent of Canadians want a change. Now, out of that, 30% don't know who, you know, uh, don't like the options. But, I mean, when was the last time you voted for somebody? Usually you vote to get someone else out. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll take him or her. Um, 80% want to change. What are your thoughts of of the future and and this pattern that we seem to see of just incompetence? Well, I'm not surprised by this number for those very reasons we just talked about. Governments, as they age, tend to get flabbier and lazier and more careless. And, look, we saw it with Dalton McGuinty and then Kathleen Wynne. And then what happens? Everyone, as you say, gets mad. They obliterate them. They wipe them off the table. Mike Harris, uh, when Brian Mulroney was running and then he left and left Kim Campbell holding the bag and she got obliterated in her party. This is what happens. You govern for a while. You start to get, whether it's lazy or overconfident or whatever else, and people start to get sick of you. It happens with every party. It happens with every side of the political aisle. And I think that's what we're seeing now the the interesting thing about this poll is and i i think it was either you or bill this morning that was talking about it i can't remember so forgive me but um was that people don't seem to know who they want to go to they seem to not want justin trudeau anymore that seems pretty clear which surprises me that he is to this point anyway being so stubbornly hanging on rather than handing the the torch to someone else in the party to maybe give them a chance but uh, they don't know where to go at this point i think what you're going to see because of that you are going to see i think a very different over the next year or so very different pierre polyev and a very different jugmeet singh to try to latch on to that discontent and find that sweet spot where people and go, oh, okay, I can see myself going there. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Have a great show, Scott. Thanks again. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer for the last word. This one from John via email, a stage play. Since our prime minister is only educated in drama, he should put on a play for us. He could call it Justin and his amazing Technicolor Dream Socks. 